1: I'm Maeve McLennigan, and this is The Tip-Off. On this podcast, we take you behind the scenes of some of the UK's best investigative journalism. Episode by episode, we'll be digging into an amazing investigative scoop, hearing from the journalists behind the work as they tell us about the leads, the dead ends, and how they got their story out. Picture the scene. It's a rainy winter morning, and Jane Bradley is stood on a doorstep in West London. At her feet is a garden gnome, another clue in a puzzle she is unravelling. She is about to knock and tell a mother that she suspects her son is one of the world's most wanted terrorists. But that comes later. As ever, it starts with a tip-off.
0: Obama, have yet a game. From your actions, come yet another.
1: In 2014, the filmed murder of journalist James Foley shocked the world. Little was known publicly of his executioner, a masked man speaking in a British accent, who became dubbed as Jihadi John. Until...
0: The man in the mask is one of the world's most wanted, and now authorities know his name.
1: A story broke in the Washington Post. Journalist Adam Goldman had discovered the man's identity.
2: Okay, well, this originally began with, when, when Jim Comey said that he knew the identity of Jihadi John.
0: You have a name? I have it in my head, but you're not willing
3: to share it. I am not.
2: Uh, you know, my editors said, well, Comey knows the name and you should be able to get the name. So for months and months and months, we pieced together uh, Jihadi John's identity.
1: Jihadi John was Mohammed Mwazi. Born in Kuwait, he had moved to the UK when he was six years old, grew up in West London and studied IT at the University of Westminster before moving to Syria. But Mwazi did not work alone. His nickname, Jihadi John, had been born from the fact that he was one of a group of notoriously cruel ISIS jailers, nicknamed by their captors as the Beatles because of their British accents. The four men were collectively responsible for beheading 27 hostages and torturing captives with electric shocks, waterboarding and mock executions.
2: I had to learn about him. We tried to learn about his fellow Beatles. Um, But we only came up in the end with Jihadi John's name.
1: So even with Mwazi unmasked, the rest of that horrifically cruel group were still unknown. Who and where were Paul, George and Ringo? journalists around the world raced to unmask their true identities including jane bradley my name is jane bradley and
3: i am an investigations correspondent at buzzfeed news based in london
1: but how do you go about tracking down some of the world's most wanted men this is the story of how jane did it not once but twice like any good investigation it started with a tip-off Jane was working at her desk in BuzzFeed's central London office, just off Oxford Street, when one day her editor called her over and said she had a tip for her. I remember just thinking, this is huge. Adam Goldman had been in touch. Fresh on the heels of his scoop about Jihadi John, he had been passed another name. A name that supposedly could unmask another of the Beatles' terror cell, the captor known as Ringo.
2: I believe I, I first learned Cote's name... Uh, from a former hostage, in fact. A former hostage held in Syria knew the name of Kote.
1: But as tips go, it wasn't a lot of
3: information. Two very kind of vague pieces of information. One was that this guy's name was Alexander Cote, um and he gave a spelling which later turned out to be completely incorrect. Um, and the other was that he was friends or or a contact with Mohammed Amwazi, um, the guy from West London who was featured in all the ISIS propaganda videos. So um, he also said he was mixed race. You know, we were in the midst of um, all the coverage about Jihadi John uh, Mohammed Amwazi. And I knew that kind of. The World Intelligence Services, certainly the Western Intelligence Services, were on the hunt for these men. And nobody knew who they were. I knew journalists were all trying to find out who they were. So I kind
1: of knew immediately how big the story would be. So she had a name, Alexei Kote, though how that was spelt was anyone's guess, and a hint that he might have family from Ghana. But a name is not enough. For one thing, there could be any number of people with that name. And what was his story? How did he end up getting involved in something so horrifying? With an allegation so serious, Jane was going to have to be 100% sure she had the right person. The name was a start, but Jane had no idea where it would lead. So she began by searching everywhere she could online for that name.
3: So there was one clue we found... Um, which proved quite vital in the investigation. And that was an old Ask FM transcript of an interview with Ringo. Um, And in it, he kind of gave a couple of clues as to his identity. One was that he was a QPR fan. Two was that he was as British as they
1: come. QPR, Queen's Park Rangers, a football team based in West London. Okay, he's a football fan, but that doesn't get her closer to finding his true identity. So the next thing we did is I looked at all the different spellings of the name Alexander Cote. Jane spent days running different spellings of the name through every online database she could find. And then she got a match. At least it could have been a match, but there was something not quite right. The name was listed as a woman. So it was Miss Alexander Cote. A woman? That couldn't be right. But she was curious, and it was the best lead she had. So Jane packed up her notebook and headed out to the address listed next to that name. So I went down to this area of
3: West London with my colleague Richard Holmes, and we waited all day outside the address. And then uh, I'd initially knocked on the door, no one was in. But what I'd noticed
1: was on the doorstep was a QPR gnome. Could this be it? Was Jane about to come face to face with the family of one of the world's most wanted men? Or was she about to meet a Miss Cote, some innocent woman with no connection to the story at all? So I went up to the door and I knocked. And initially,
3: the person I now know as a stepdad, answered the door. And my opening gambit was, hi, could I speak to Alexander Cotey? And he was kind of friendly, but a bit quizzical. Alexander Cote, Alexander Cote. And he was like, I don't think I know an Alexander Cote. And then the mum came out and the mum was having none of it. As soon as she came to the door, she said, why are you asking? Who are you? And then obviously I said, I'm a journalist from BuzzFeed News. And she said, I cannot help you and went to close the door. It was an instant kind of shutting down. A dead end. But something didn't feel right. Their attitude was really unusual. I've done a lot of doorsteps. And it's not unusual for someone to tell you to go away and close the door on your face. But what was unusual was that they seemed to know why
1: I was there before I even had time to explain it. Jane's editors suggested she drop the story. She'd spent weeks on it, but to no avail. Perhaps Adam Goldman's source was completely mistaken. But something in the way the woman at the door had acted was playing on her mind. And Jane's not one to give up. Jane went back to the drawing board. Convinced she was on the right track, she turned to a database of company ownership records called Companies House. She started to run the name through those records. Time after time, it came up the same. He was listed as a miss again. But on she searched until finally she came to a company incorporation document. That's a piece of paperwork which requires the applicant to fill in the form by hand. And on that record,
3: it said Mr. Alexander Cote. So this was really interesting because every electronic record had had said it was a woman. But the handwritten record, the one that couldn't theoretically be changed or edited,
1: said Mr. So she had him. According to this document, Alexei Cote was a man after all. And then she had another breakthrough. I went back onto Trace IQ
3: and I managed to get the birth certificate for Alexander Cote. It's just to confirm. I wanted to confirm, first of all, that it was a man. Definitely it was a kind of a typo or handwriting error. Um, and then I really wanted to find out. So the birth certificate gives you information about the parents and the parents' heritage and kind of what job they did and where they were from, their nationality. Um, so I eventually got the birth certificate back and it came back, confirmed he was male. Not only that, but his father was Ghanaian, So he was mixed
1: race and he was from Gardner. Keen to check she was on the right track, Jane would check in with Adam Goldman and he would relay the snippets of information to his intelligence sources for confirmation.
2: It was pretty clear to me that she found him. <laughs> you know, my job was just to try to feed her more information, right? She would get an age and then I'd go back and I'd poke around and say, is that age right? You know, yes, he's 27, he's 26, that DOB's right.
1: But a simple miscommunication almost threw them both off.
2: I think one time I had a DOB reversed, but it was the British DOB. And then we realized, right? Yeah, when I went to the Americans with the British of birth, because I think your day comes, doesn't your day come first? Yeah. So, right, I almost threw it off. <laughs> and then I realised, no, wait, no, it's, it's true the other way.
1: Differences in British US dates aside, Jane was now feeling pretty confident she had the right guy. The next thing was to go and get confirmation that he had gone to Syria. And the only way to do that was through people who knew him. So... What I did is,
3: um, on the company's house documents, it listed his business partner. Um, So I found the home address of this business partner. I didn't want to give too much away because, A, it wasn't confirmed that he was a terrorist. And to go around saying, oh, we think this guy's a terrorist without knowing or at least being confident in it would have been unfair to him. So I just said, uh, we're looking to get in touch with him for a potential story. But it was too sensitive to explain in detail what it was. And then he said... Well, I haven't seen him in years, um, not really since he converted to Islam um, when he was in his early 20s. So that fitted another part of the picture we were looking at. But he said, anyway, I can't really tell you very much about him. I knew his brother better. And I said, oh, who's his brother? And he gave me the name. And He said, oh, I'm looking at him on LinkedIn now.
1: Now the pieces started to fall into place. One contact would lead her to another and on and on. And his brother's Facebook profile had a public friends list.
3: So, what I did then was to basically go through every single friend on his friend list and a family member and contact them. And I must have messaged easily 300 people, easily. Most of them didn't reply. Some of them replied, said, I can't help you. But then one guy did reply and he said, Yeah, let me call you. I'll tell you about him. So, anyway, and knew that he had converted to Islam and said that he had become radicalised at a local mosque.
1: After speaking to several people who knew Cote, Jane finally felt confident that she had the right guy. His family history matched the information the former hostage had given, and Cote's old friends confirmed that he had travelled to Syria. Other friends passed on photographs and filled her in on how he had grown from a football loving West London boy to a radicalised jihadi killer. She was ready to publish, but there were so many times the investigation could have been stopped in its tracks.
3: It, it almost scares me to think about that, because honestly, if his family, if his parents, had been better liars, then I would have gone away. But I think that shows, A, the importance of your instinct as a journalist, and B, is just that kind of doggedness, that not giving up. Like I could have easily have just been like, right, that's it, my editors would have understood, they weren't pushing any more, um... But it's just kind of keep, half the time getting the story, just keeping going when other people have stopped.
1: That's half the battle. She didn't know it then, but Jane would keep going still. She was about to find yet another of the Beatles' terror cell. She would soon be on the hunt for the man known as George. Stay tuned for part two, as Jane finds herself breaking some terrible news to a bereft mother. Back in Washington, and Adam Goldman is having lunch with a former U.S. official.
2: Out of the blue, I just asked him, hey, do you know who the Beatles are? And he knew about Shakafe. Um, so it was, it was just a coincidence. We were having lunch, and I would always ask people. Whenever I met with people I thought who might know, I'd ask them. Um, and he happened to know the name. He had a pretty good memory.
1: The name was El Shafi Al Sheikh. According to this intelligence officer, he was a member of the terror cell known as George. Adam passed it on to Jane, and she got to work. This time Jane was able to track the family down a lot quicker. Shaffy's name had been in the press before, though he hadn't been linked to the Beatles' terror cell. So just a few days after her first story broke, Jane found herself back in West London, about to do another doorstep. I'd, I'd driven
3: there, taken out a hire car, and I'd just gone by myself, parked up, and just rehearsed in my mind... Uh, my opening gambit and how
1: it's going to try and
3: get her in. Um, It was raining, which you might think is actually bad, but often it gets you sympathy
1: on door knocks. Jane had done plenty of doorstep knocks before, but standing there in the rain, she still felt nervous. I think I still always get a bit of nerves on a
3: door knock, um, especially because generally the door knocks um, that I do, that most investigative journalists do, it's not good news. So you're either approaching somebody to ask them to talk about something really difficult and personal, or you're confronting them with allegations. So I think it's natural to feel nervous in that situation. And um, I think the key things when you are doing the door knock is, for me, I kind of have my initial approach almost um, mapped out in my head. I know the first kind of few
1: phrases I'm going to open with. Last time she had been in this situation, she'd had a door slammed in her face and her investigation had been all but derailed. Pulling herself together, she knocked. So I knocked on the door
3: and her friend answered. um, And I just said, I'm here to speak to al-Shafi al-Sheikh's mother. So I walked in and it was kind of the hallway was lined with family photographs of al-Shafi, but also what I now know as his brothers. So I came in the living room where she was sat in her big white armchair and she's a frail tiny tiny woman I think in her 60s 70s and I came around and just said you know I'm Jane I'm here from BuzzFeed and like I said I'm here to talk to you about your son's radicalization I know it's going to be difficult and pretty much at that point she just burst into tears like completely broke down so obviously that confirmed to me it was definitely the right address and the right person um and It's kind of that difficult line when you're a journalist about being sympathetic but not fake, but also what would your natural human reaction be if somebody sat there in tears in front of you? So I kind of grabbed her hand and um, reassured her and said I was really sorry I was here to talk about something so difficult but it was important and she kind of, it just all came out and she started just sobbing and telling me a story and how he was such a good boy and how helpless she felt when he was becoming radicalised because as a single mum, she couldn't have access to the mosque he was radicalised at. She felt completely disconnected and just describing kind of the change in his attitude Um over a period of a year, she said it was lightning fast, his radicalisation.
1: Was she aware that, that her son was one of those four? Or what, was it just that she, she thought he had gone off to Syria?
3: Well, this was a really difficult thing. She was aware he'd gone off to Syria. Um, but she had no idea what he was doing over there. In fact, she thought, because he was such um, kind of a mechanical engineering genius, she said to me, you know, I'm sure they just used him for him to, to fix cars and um, machinery. That's what he's being used for. She kind of, I don't think she could comprehend that he was carrying out executions and was one of the, kind of the key guards of this internationally
1: wanted terrorist cell. My kids were perfect, she told Jane, a look of total incomprehension on her face. And one day it suddenly happened. In her article, Jane would describe the woman as small and delicate, swamped in an oversized grey wool jumper and long, dark skirt. She gives the impression of having sunk somewhere deep inside herself, Jane wrote.
3: Breaking that news to her was abs- It's one of the hardest things I've had to do um, as a journalist. And and she just started going, no, no, not Shafi, not Shafi, not, not my son and just absolutely breaking and rocking on her chair and clutching her tissue and just absolutely like head in her hands. I've never seen someone just look, whose grief was just so raw. And her friend came running in the the room, into the the living room, and kind of she managed these sobs to kind of explain what I told her. And her friend just grabbed her by the shoulders and said, this is not your fault. You are only his mum. This is not your fault. And thank God her friend calmed her down in a way that I couldn't have done. And she then kind of quietened down, stopped sobbing and just said, if that is my son, he is no longer my son. That's not what I brought him up to be. That's not who he is. He's
1: not my son. Shaken by the encounter, Jane headed back to the office to write up the story. A few days later, it was published. The story shocked the world again, and Jane soon heard from Al Shafi's mother.
3: Yeah, so she called me the next... She called me the morning the story was published, and she was obviously upset, but she said, "Um, thank you, you've done a good job, you've you've told his story and who he is. To hear that as a journalist was just... when When you were telling such a difficult story for her was just so overwhelming, and
1: I was so pleased that she was kind of as happy as she could be with it. In the space of just a few months, Jane had identified and unmasked two of the world's most wanted criminals. It was a kind of scoop most journalists would work their whole careers for. I asked Jane how she had felt before publishing both momentous stories. I was incredibly nervous, and I think
3: every half-decent investigative journalist has those nerves and those kind of I don't know if second thoughts is the right words, but you start to question everything you know and you're like, God, is it definitely this guy? You know, it is the photo. We confirmed it with enough people. Are the intelligence sources definitely right? Um, and you, yeah, you always have these thoughts going through your head. So it's such a huge story. And kind of obviously, the thing that's at the forefront of your mind is if you are wrong, you're exposing this family to all this media spotlight and all this kind of public judgment for something that might not be true so you have to be a hundred percent sure in your journalism especially if something that kind of affects someone's life um straightforward so much uh so yeah generally I mean kind of excited that would come so far but (laughs) more than that nervous (laughs) to be honest I mean that story ended up on every single front page um in the UK every single national newspaper
1: in the UK It was a brilliant jigsawing together of various bits of this tapestry that built into an incredibly rich picture. The work was also a prime example of collaboration between two newsrooms, with Adam Goldman feeding leads and confirming Jane's progress.
3: It was a really great collaboration because neither of us could have done the story without the other. So we didn't have the intelligence sources, um, which Adam had, and Adam didn't have kind of the expertise or ability to do the door knocks in London or trace all the public records so um, we both credited each other in the investigation it was a joint investigation very much so and it worked out incredibly well.
1: But the journey was a long one and for a while it had looked like the story was slipping through her fingers. I asked Jane when was the moment she knew she'd got the story what was the moment along that journey when you thought aha I've got you? That 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 you were like ninety nine percent sure that, that this was the guy. The you were birth
3: certificate, for.
1: yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The birth
3: certificate was a key bit where I was like, "Got you." So that was when I thought, right, this story's got legs. We can tell it.
1: In May this year, the final alleged member of the Beatles cell, Ayn Davis, was convicted of terrorism in a Turkish court. Jihadi John, or Mohammed Emwazi, was reportedly killed in a drone strike earlier last year. But no one knows the current whereabouts of either Lexicote or El Shafi'el Sheik. Thanks to Jane's reporting, both men can no longer hide behind the mask of anonymity. And the work sparked an important debate about how young British men come to be radicalised. Like the best kind of journalism, it shone a light into dark corners and revealed the troubled young men behind the monsters. That's all from this week's episode. Next time. You're basically paying £264 a week to kill me. I think that was really, in in one quote, how she felt about where she was living. Emma Yule tells us how she spent a year exposing appalling living conditions right in the heart of London. This has been a tip-off, hosted and produced by me, Maeve McLennigan, with production advice from Lorna Stewart. Our theme music is by Dice Muse. Thanks to Jane Bradley. As always, you can find a link to her story in the show notes. If you've liked this episode, please do tell a friend, write us a review on iTunes, and stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines.